It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Nope. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh no. Oh yes, but fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. One thing my research for this episode exposed to me for the first time was the Osmonds quasi-metal album from 1972. That shocked me. Did you listen to it? I did. And they start out with their version of the Immigrant Song. I'm like, what the hell is this? Yeah, Crazy Horses. It's so shocking. And I love finding stuff out like that. They were kids and they went off and they said, we want to kind of make our own record. They'd probably go and do some drugs in the cabin, and uh, it ended up sounding like poppy Black Sabbath. That's really cool. To be honest, drugs to the Osmonds is probably expired milk. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal Tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is John Martin, CEO of America's only rock and roll magazine, Cream. We talked to John about his search for the complete recording of ACDC's legendary 1977 gig at New York CBGB, the compensation that counterculture cartoonist R. Crumb received for designing Cream's mascot, Boy Howdy, and why Detroit was the perfect place for Cream magazine to be born. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not too much. There's too much perspective now. Alex, as a teenager, I love to read rock and roll magazines like Cream, The Rolling Stone, The New York Rocker, Trouser Press. In fact, my cousin Lenny earned my eternal admiration when he got an article published about Captain Beefheart in the New York Rocker. Yeah, and I got to say, you have written many songs I really love, but your song Captain Beefheart with the Walendas is one of my absolute favorites. I didn't know that. Thank you. It's on the album Belittle, if anyone's going to look for it. I love Beefheart. Yeah, I kind of ripped off the immigrant song there. But anyway, in my starry-eyed dreaminess as a young boy turning into a fine man... I kind of, <laughs> I kind of hope Lenny would one day write an article as great about me and my music. Did that happen? Well, at the time and for many, many years after, I sucked. Hmm. I don't think I wrote a good song until I was 24. And by the time I was writing decent songs, Lenny, unfortunately, was suffering from bouts of mental illness. That's too bad. It is, because he's a great guy. Anyway, without Lenny available as my personal journalist, I decided to do the second best thing. I wrote a 100% fabricated press release on the letterhead of the advertising agency that I was working for at the time (laughs) under the pseudonym 
of the bully in my elementary school, Kenny Van Engel, entitled <laughs> Alan Keller to Helen Back. And it was all about me going mad in the studio and throwing away the master takes a la Brian Wilson. And to my surprise, that Milwaukee publication <laughs> ran that article verbatim. That Kenny Van Engel must have really thought you were a crazy genius rock star. And I, because I wanted to repay Kenny, I actually nominated him for the Pulitzer Prize in music commentary. He didn't win, but he got the nom. You took your fraud all the way to the Pulitzer organization? All the way. But, you know, this story <laughs> just proves the effing perspective that any press is good press because other articles were written using that article as background. So, Well, it sounds like among your many claims of fame, you are the inventor of fake news. <laughs> anyway, I think that we should press on to our interview with a real journalist and media executive, John Martin from Cream Magazine. But first... A short break. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. And now a man who sued his former employers at Vice Media for custody of a taxidermy grizzly bear, Cream Magazine's John Martin. John, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Let's start here. You left your job of 18 years at Vice to take on the task of bringing one of the greatest rock and roll magazines ever, Cream, back to life. Yeah. And I think that reclamation project really kicked into gear with the 2019 documentary film Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine. That movie showed Cream to be a crazy place to work, led by a bunch of geniuses, including the founder, Barry Kramer. And you've teamed up with Barry's son, JJ, for the new iteration of the magazine. And I'm wondering if there are any Spinal Tap moments you can share from getting that first new issue in 30 years out the door. The world of Cream is filled with weirdos and characters. And if that's not Spinal Tap, I don't know what is. It's just everyone involved is a very strange person from myself to our chairman, to our head of content, to people that worked there back in the day. You know, I'm 43, so Cream was pretty much done by the time that I was getting into rock and roll magazines. And what's the magic of it is, it's something that I talked about a lot at Vice, and I've realized 
probably all came from Spinal Tap was the idea of there being a really thin line between being stupid and being clever. How do you do smart things in a stupid way? And how do you do stupid things in a smart way? And that was something Cream did a lot of. And they were probably the first modern cultural publication to do that. And I think that mentality has really been pervasive in this type of stuff that I have really gravitated to in my upbringing, whether it was things like Beavis and Butthead when I was in junior high, they nailed it to things like South Park, to things like Vice or to skateboarding magazines like Big Brother, to Jackass. There is an element of intelligence and an element of total moronic stupidity (laughs) in everything we do. And we want to bring that to Cream for sure. Well, Cream was really like a rock band, right? I mean, you had your Nigel, David, and Derek in Barry Kramer, legendary rock critic Dave Marsh, who went on to be editor of Rolling Stone, and famed rock and roll contrarian Lester Bangs, who is so mythologized that he was actually played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in Cameron Crowe's great rock and roll movie, Almost Famous. And that's just a few of them. All of these people were part of forming Cream's identity early on and who all wanted the magazine to be the best ever, but you know, basically fought over the path to get there. Yeah. I mean, look, an album or a magazine is made up of the people that make it. You're not going to get the same record that Brian Jones made with the Stones as you get with the ones that Mick Taylor made with the Stones. You get the ones that Ronnie Wood made with the Stones. And same thing with a magazine. You get a different iteration based on the people that are involved. And it's not simply replicating what came before. Everyone puts their own spin on it. So it's certainly different now than 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But you know, we're certainly not trying to be duplicative or make it sort of a cover band or tribute act mentality. It certainly needs to be modern with nods to the past. But yeah, it's funny watching that documentary. You really do get the sense at a certain moment, like, is this a band or is this a magazine? Did did they have an office or were they actually just on tour? (laughs) Right. Did they even know? I don't think they knew if they were a band or a magazine. And it's also funny, when you're in a band, you could really not get along, but you've gone to war together, you're soldiers, right? So there's a bond that's forever. And I thought it was interesting that Dave Marsh obviously had huge problems with Barry, with Lester too. Both. Right. But specifically when Lester died, he was really angry at him. It's another kind of band bond that these people had at Cream. Yeah. And a lot of them had moved on fairly quickly. Lester passed, if I'm not mistaken, in the early 80s. Right. And you know he had not been at Cream at that point for probably five years. And there's definitely distinct eras, right? And, you know, Jan Uzelski, she works with us now. She's one of our editorial directors. She was at Cream in the heyday. And there were certainly different iterations. That first era, it's fair to say, ended when Barry passed away in 8081. The times were changing. Punk had happened. And it was becoming a new entity and certainly not what was happening when Marsh and Bangs and Co. were in Detroit running it in the early to mid-70s. Well, I think it's interesting, too. I mean, Cream really couldn't have started anywhere but Detroit, right? It's a very Detroit production, and Detroit was such an important rock and roll town at the time. What do you think Detroit added to Cream 
And what do you think about the identity Cream has with Detroit? Not being coastal was really important in the beginning. When you don't become sycophantic media, you're worshiping at the altar of celebrity. It was very much like when Iggy would come by the office, it was like, it's no big deal. That's just Iggy. Barry attacked him, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put a trash can on his head or something. It's hard to remember all the stories. I mean, there's just so many. Sure. And there's always more that come out and we get hit up by a lot of people who had contributed in some way or were involved, anything from they were a writer, a photographer, to they distributed the magazine. And we're hearing from all these people and they all have stories. And these are names I've seen in a film or names I've read about, but I don't have a personal connection to them. Whereas JJ was the chairman. You know, he obviously does because he knew a lot of these people personally when he was a little kid and his dad knew them and his mom, she's still around. She knew them as well. Sure. So it's funny because we are in the unique position of operating in this thing that meant a lot to a lot of people, especially in Detroit. None of us are in Detroit. We have some contributors there. Joe Casey from the band Proto Martyr, he writes a column called Greetings from Detroit, which sort of grounds us as we're always going to cover Detroit. We're always going to have a bit of a flag there, but we don't have an office there right now. And, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that modern day Detroit is the musical hotbed that the late 60s, early 70s Detroit was. And that was another reason that Cream came out of that scene was there was a lot going on there. I mean, name another city in another era that was that fertile ground for music. It's a very short list of things that, in my opinion, would top Detroit in the late 60s, early 70s. So it's no shock that a bunch of smartasses wanted to start a magazine and talk shit about music and musicians. I put my screenwriting career on hold for three years to start a vegan cheese company with my wife, Lois, called Nary Dairy. And you also made a foray into food culture, starting Munchies within Vice that was all about restaurants and chefs and so on. How did that come about? And were there any Spinal Tap moments cooked up out of that concoction? I mean... All day long. (laughs) If musicians are weird and neurotic, food people and chefs are probably even more so. And there's a reason that there's such an overlap between the two. I mean, fundamentally, these are misfits and people, they like the spotlight, but they're probably, in a lot of ways, not the most socially (laughs) well-adjusted human beings on earth. So the food world was a lot of fun. I was probably fairly early on that wave of food content happening. And we spent a lot of money on making it happen. It was a really good, fun ride that I did for probably eight years. And in terms of like spinal tap moments, like just when you find someone who believes their own bullshit (laughs) and it's the, this amp goes to 11 concept, right? Like you find someone who's telling you about their cocktail or their food or how they make it or this is so important because the farmer who grows this does it like this and you're just like that makes no difference (laughs) everyone knows you're completely full of it 
look, the similarities between the music world, the rock world, especially, and the food world are not insignificant. I always found the whole like chefs are the new rock stars. I always found that to ring a little hollow. Fundamentally, like chefs can only make a certain amount of food for people every night where someone who makes music, that song can be heard by almost an infinite amount of people as opposed to just making a plate of food. No knock on chefs. It's just I had never liked the whole chefs of the new rock star thing. So I made a fermented cashew cheese, and it was a ridiculous product that really was two products, really labor-intensive, and it was a world I had no experience in. So I had to make it at a shared entrepreneurial <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> that has never stopped you. That's that has never stopped my, you. my entire story. Thank goodness. So, you know, I thought it was really funny. Like, I love the show The Bear because it really reminds me of our kitchen because everyone's calling, hey, chef, chef, chef. That's a term of respect. Everyone has to call the chef the chef. So I have a horrible, horrible story from the devil's realm. So we <laughs> oh, had a dear. general manager of the kitchen who was morbidly obese. And he was not a bad guy, but he was kind of an officious prick. And he would use his power to move your stuff around, or you can't use this part of the kitchen. Just kind of annoying things to exert his power. But anyways, he got a gastric bypass to save his life, and he lost maybe three, 400 pounds. So he's gotten the men improving his life. And he had a troubled younger cousin in Florida. And he said, come here, you can live with me and I'll set you up at the kitchen. You can work for various vendors. One day, my wife and I are coming on a Friday and Larry Bresler, who was the general manager, comes up to us and goes, the knife sharpener's here. I'm gonna get my wife, I'm gonna get them all sharpened. Shoot ahead to Monday, I get this text Larry and his wife have been murdered by the knives he sharpened. And I guess that cousin, they asked him to move. It wasn't working out. And then two days later, he murdered Larry and his wife in bed. So that's a horrible story, but that's kind of the world. You know, you have these personalities who are strained. They're oftentimes like holding on by a thin thread and things can set them off. I remember this is probably twenty. 13 or so, I was on a shoot in Moscow and we were shooting a chef, Lexi Zimmon, who was a big chef and big restaurateur, and kind of shooting an episode where he and his friends went out and drinking and eating one night. It's a lot of fun. You know, we tagged along and saw the whole thing. And our producer was a Russian kid and he could rub people the wrong way pretty easily. Oh, no. And there was one moment outside of a bar. You know, I don't speak Russian and I couldn't really clock what was going on, <laughs> but I did notice one of the friends of the chef who was in the shoot just haul off and one punch knock out our producer wow. on the steps of the bar. And I was like, uh, is everything okay? Are we all going to get in a fight right now? And <laughs> like, no, everything's fine. He just needed to be knocked out. Uh, huh. It was cartoonish. He was crossing the line from overzealous fan to probably producer being a little too bossy. So the food world was filled with weird characters and <laughs> weird moments for sure. And I just realized the irony of you going from food, Munchies advice, from real cream to cream magazine with two E's. That's kind of ironic. Oh, it's not lost on me in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share one more from the fine dining world and then I'll segue us back to music, which is my wife, Rachel was on the founding staff at Spago Beverly Hills. 
And so she interacted with Wolfgang Puck a lot. And of course, all kinds of celebrities came into the restaurant constantly. And one night, the guests included Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley from Kiss. And those guys were not satisfied to just listen to whatever music happened to be going through the PA system at the restaurant. They brought their own string players. Wow. And so they have a violinist, and I'm not sure what the whole ensemble looked like, but they had these strings set up next to their table playing Kiss songs <laughs> as they had their meal. So um, was... I could see Beth, but not Dr. Love, <laughs> I think. Oh, imagine strings. Detroit Rock City. Get down, everybody's going to leave their seat. Right? Yeah. So. Anyway, yeah, it takes all kinds. As you've gotten closer to JJ, obviously JJ's first generation cream, although probably wasn't born at the beginning. Yeah, he was born in the mid-70s. Yeah, he was four when his father died, Alan. Oh, okay. Any stories that JJ has told you that you can share with us that are not part of the documentary and things that his mom told him? Well, I've actually only talked with his mom, Connie, once, but the story that I really like, and I don't remember if this was part of the documentary or not, but JJ had sort of a, a life quest whether he knew it or not, to get cream back. And once it was sold off and it went to LA, it passed through the hands of a lot of different people. You know, not like hundreds, but there were different entities that had different parts of it. And JJ was in school to be an intellectual property lawyer and putting rights back together and trademarks and copyrights and who owns what. And whether there was some mystical force driving him to do this because he had to get cream back or not will probably never really be known. But eventually, he really started going after it hard. He was out of law school and really started trying to put the pieces back together. At the time, the photographer, Robert Matthau, he had some collection of rights in some regard to cream, and he had published a book about cream, which a lot of the old school cream people felt was apocryphal at best and felt that it really whitewashed a lot of contributions out of existence and were not happy with how the book turned out. Well, the book's launch party was at CBGB, or sorry, at the former CBGB in Manhattan, which at that time, this is like 2008, was a John Varvata store. Right. So, you know, it was kind of a perfect metaphor for what was going on. Yeah. And JJ, from the versions that you can read in various New York tabloids that wrote about it, he had a couple drinks. He went over to the party you know, with a full head of steam, got in a fight with the author and was thrown out by security. And that could have either been the end of it, or it could have been the springboard for him to get increased motivation to get this thing back. And I think it was the latter. And he wasn't going to be defeated. And he eventually got it back from those guys. So that is really cool. Of course, I have a copy of that book that I prominently display in my <laughs> office just to aggravate him when we're on video calls. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I just want to say, John, I have been to CBGB as a tour manager with Radiohead 
and PJ Harvey. I've been to CBGB with my own band and played there. And I've been to the CBGB clothing store. So I can picture the scene that you're describing. Did Radiohead play CBGB? Indeed. Wow. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. I was with them on Pablo Honey. So we were doing a lot of the legendary clubs like the old 930 in Washington, D.C. and the Whiskey in Los Angeles and yeah, Slims in San Francisco, Rock Candy in Seattle, Metro in Chicago. You know, it's funny. I moved to New York in 2002 and CBGB was well past its prime at that point. You know, they had some hardcore matinee or whatever that would sometimes be okay, but they weren't booking things that felt like something I'd want to go to in the aughts. Like the center of gravity had certainly moved to Brooklyn, but I became obsessed when I found out that ACDC played CBGB. Ah, I'd never heard that. Yeah, it's a really cool story. I'm probably going to get a lot of details wrong, but what happened was they had just played um what venue in midtown was it It, i think it was what became roseland Hmm. i don't remember what it was when they played this this 77 76 and they had heard about this punk venue downtown and after their show at the big venue for three thousand people or whatever they went down marched in and said hey we're acdc and we'd like to play a set or we're gonna play a set and they let them play. There is a recording. There's like two or three songs that you can find. I don't know if they played a whole set. I mean, for me, that's like such a ridiculous holy grail of ACDC just showing up and CBGB playing a late night set. And then going back in the Cream archives and looking through not just the content like the articles, but looking through the magazines, because we have them all on the website. All the magazines are up there. And you look through and you can see all the ads from that era. Mm. And then realizing that ACDC, who's probably the quintessential like capital H hard rock band, in the late 70s, they were marketed as a punk band. Wow. It was huh. like they were an Australian punk band. I don't really recall that because you know I wasn't born until 79, but at least in the pages of Cream, some of the ads that were running, you look at them 30 years later, four years later, and you're like, they're marketing them as a punk band. And you know maybe there was a lot to that. They were in a weird space where they were a little too early for punk, but they certainly knew what was up and they wanted to go play CBGB. And for me, I'm obsessed with finding that whole set because I think there's probably more than two songs out there. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.
Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. We would be remiss if we didn't ask you, John, what is your favorite moment in the movie This Is Spinal Tap? So can I pick the cold sores, or does that not count as a singular moment? (laughs) You guys are more the experts than I am. And I would love to know because it's just such a, it's like a funny grace note that you see on something where you're just like that attention to detail, which goes totally undiscussed. And it's there if you see it. And I just like things like that, especially like in magazine publishing, people can put these jokes in that are reoccurring jokes and you'll see them happen and evolve throughout the issues. The same thing with the cold sores and spinal tap is once you see it once, you know, you're going to see it again and you see it again. And I've read about it. And is it true that there was supposed to be a gag there or there was supposed to be more of a plot around that and they just cut it? Do you guys know anything about that? Yes. I think John Lankford might've told us from the Mekons. I think it was originally a whole, you see the incident where they contracted that STD. So obviously, you know, it is so much better to not see the origins of it and also not to mention it and respect your audience to be smart enough to pick up on it, right? Because <laughs> it's just a perfect moment and it's never mentioned, but we all get it. That to me was just smart movie making. And I think for anyone that's been in bands, there's certainly a undercurrent of when one person's going to get sick, everyone's probably going to get sick. So have a nice tour. <laughs> There's always one bandmate who's the sexual designated driver who hasn't gotten the STD that takes care of business over the other bandmates who all have it. Yeah, that, that's the voice of experience speaking right there, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about Cream. You've been very clear in the way that you've talked about it publicly that Getting the magazine back into the hands of people. And by the way, I have my copy three and my copy two right here. I don't have copy one. I'm going to have to hunt that one down. I think I know someone who can send it to you. (laughs) But anyway, your magazine is step one and you're moving into other things, events and other kinds of media and that sort of thing. And you've already done at this year's South by Southwest, Cream through a three-day, as you called it, rock and roll rager. And in classic Cream tongue-in-cheek hubris, you called it Austin's only rock and roll party, a big statement to make in the middle of South by. And remember, everything that happens in Austin stays on too much having perspective, right? So any Spinal Tap moments to report from that event? So I wasn't actually there, but Fred Pissarro, our VP of content, he was there. And there was a band that went on stage called Mexican Coke. Perfect. Take that for however you will. That's awesome. And when they went on stage, I started getting the text messages pretty fast. (laughs) They play kind of a metal-influenced hardcore, and they're all in masks, full like executioner, gangster masks, or hoods. You can't see their faces. And the lead singer is brandishing a sawed-off shotgun at the crowd. Wow. 
that was aggressive. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is like some weird butthole surfers, Gibby on stage at Lollapalooza in 91 or whatever. Right. Like, or Texas. Yeah. Or this is just Texas. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is Mexican Coke. And I definitely got a photo sent to me of their holding. We have these boy howdy plushy dolls that we use in interviews sometimes. So people have to be interviewed and talk to boy howdy, our mascot. And they're holding up boy howdy and, you know, holding up the shotgun to his head uh, in one of the photos. And I said, okay, I didn't really expect that to happen. I I hope our insurance had covered (laughs) what was surely prop (laughs) firearms. Yeah, right. (laughs) Of course, because no one has a real gun in America Uh, these days. Definitely not Texas. We called it Austin's Only Rock and Roll Party because, you know, obviously that was a riff on America's Only Rock and Roll magazine, which the whole point of that is when that came out, there were other rock and roll magazines, right? Rolling Stone was the big one for a while. But the point of that tagline is not to say that there are no others. It's like The Clash. It's like the only band that matters. America's only rock and roll magazine is to say we are the only rock and roll magazine that matters. We want to make that point in Texas. Like There are going to be bands playing other parties here. But this is the only rock and roll party that matters. And it had the best lineup over three days. And it had something for everyone from indie rock reunions to hardcore supergroups to just balls to the wall rock and roll groups. I really wish I had gone. I, I haven't been to South by since 2011 or 12 when um, at a Vice party, ASAP Rocky attacked the crowd at one of our parties and it was a really bad scene. And that was the moment I decided I'm not going to go to South by Southwest anymore. Maybe I'll go next year when Cream does another event. Well, I just want to say branding, you know, you guys are the only rock and roll magazine. We're the only podcast that you crank up to 11. Perfect. I want to just see if you have any Spinal Tap stories about the artist who created Boy Howdy and a notorious crazy genius, R. Crumb. So R. Crumb, <laughs> this goes back to the uh, the cold sores, I suppose. As legend has it, R. Crumb was commissioned by Barry Kramer to do Boy Howdy, I believe for issue two. And he was compensated for the drawing or the likeness of the character by having an STD test paid for. That is the story. That's the medical issue they were talking about because they don't say that. (laughs) I might have just run afoul of our legal department. So uh, (laughs) I love that one. That's my favorite story ever. Uh, You know, our crumb is still active-ish, lives in France and isn't really involved in cream right now, but certainly love his body of work. It's incredible. And the only documentary I think that's better than the Cream documentary is the R. Crumb documentary. That is a good one. That's one of my favorites ever. I want to tell you, John, I really enjoyed issue number two of Cream, the Melissa Aufdomar photo piece called The Whole Truth, where she played bass in Hole. She played bass in the late 90s version of Smashing Pumpkins. And that's the era when I was out touring as well. And so I was always captivated in a morbidly curious way about what would it be like. I mean, I know what it was like to be on tour with Tom York. I wondered what was it like to be on tour with Courtney Love and what were sort of the day-to-day Spinal Tap moments that were unfolding in that situation. And she tells that story 
through the photos and the captions in such a wonderful way in that cream piece. Bands have such a carefully artificial image that they present to people. Social media has allowed them to own how they are perceived more than ever. But then you realize like the other side of that is everyone else has their cameras too. That happened in the 90s when people were just snapping photos on either disposable cameras or whatever film they were carrying around. And a lot of that is still sitting in shoeboxes all over the place. And we're going to find some of that stuff. And so I think you'll see more of that stuff in Cream. It's not just new bands. It's older stuff from the classic era. It's stuff from the era that Cream missed, the 90s and the 2000s. And you'll definitely keep seeing weird stuff from the past pop up. Yeah, well, that's great. Ripping on what you just said about Rockstar's personas and how it's put out vis-a-vis the reality, I love that talking about that recurring Cream feature, Star Cars. And in the film, Jan talks about the fact that Cream believed that rock stars are just like us. And that was one way to represent it. And I think with this podcast, Too Much Every Perspective, we feel like this is the same way. Rock stars exist in this sort of rarefied space that's very revered. And still, they go through the same day-to-day bullshit the rest of us do as exemplified in all these Spinal Tap moments that they have to live through. Yeah. We heard from our guests, Old Crow Medicine Show, that they would perform for free. That's the fun part. What they get paid for is all the other bullshit of sitting in airports waiting for planes and being bored in hotel rooms and eating crappy meals and all the day-to-day that everyday people live through in their lives. So there's a parallel there between Cream and the stories we're telling that I really appreciate. That being the whole point of Spinal Tap is it's funny for everyone and it's extra funny if you're a musician and because it hits so close to home in so many ways. And I mean, the first time I ever saw it, it was probably later in life than I'd like to admit, but I was on tour and I was in a tour van that had a DVD player and the tour manager, if you could even call him that, brought a stack of DVDs and we were debating what to watch and Spinal Tap. And I said, oh, I've actually never seen that. And everyone was like, I cannot believe you made it to this age and you've never seen that and let's put it on. And then you watch it and you're just like, oh my God, like these guys, they nailed it. It's the little humiliations of life on the road and as a musician, which become fun and the repetition becomes the humor. And you have to cherish the weirdness and the weird characters that you come across. Rock and roll is about obviously music and going to a show, but the sideshows of the rock and roll world almost make the whole thing worth it unto themselves. Mm -hmm. Like just the bizarre freak show aspect of what you have to deal with as a fan or as a musician. It's just these weird interactions, which are sometimes only seconds long that will stay with you forever. It's funny. They just so clearly nailed it. I love that there's a appreciation for anyone who just likes a funny movie. And then there's an extra layer of appreciation for anyone who's been a musician on any level. Totally agree. We always give the boys credit for being perceptive and really capturing the rock and roll experience in a movie and almost surprised by that, right? Because so many of us respond to it and feel a kinship to it. But after doing this show for a couple of years, I'm starting to think that it's the other way around is that the rock and roll experience isn't a tree with a million branches. It's a cactus. You go this way 
or you go that way or you go that way because it's a very specific experience and there's a reason why all these things recur is because they are just part of the experience, you know? And that's why we all identify with Spinal Tap is because they got those three branches right. But it's not like you really could come up with something that musicians haven't come up with because we all live through almost the same freaking experiences or at least a permutation of that. To that point, I've always wondered who was really offended by Spinal Tap because there must have been someone who took themselves (laughs) too seriously and just was like, fuck these guys like that's clearly <laughs> about me and i'm too self-serious to have a laugh i mean a lot of it you know you're like okay that's led zeppelin that's keith richards or i've never seen anyone fully admit that they were pissed or have a meltdown about it we've said this before ozzy saw the movie not knowing it was a mockumentary and thought it was a documentary and he said God, those guys haven't done anything. (laughs) Our real life is much crazier than that. And we talked to Nancy Wilson from Heart, and boy, geez, she, the most amazing thing, Alex, I don't know if I said this, about that interview with her was that Heart saw that in 84 when it came out, and it was exactly at their nadir before their 80s success. And so they totally identified with, she said it was painfully funny because they were in exactly the same place that Spinal Tap was when they saw it. And then I said, did it give you any comfort to see that they had that road out in Japan, that they were going to have this renaissance? Because you had a renaissance within six months of that. So Hart actually completely mimicked the path that Spinal Tap took. And I thought that was really fascinating. Spinal Tap was probably one of the first films to really kind of hit that with a band. Like there's the highs and the lows. And that's obviously such a trope now of any music documentary or any music film. I think the influence is actually only going to be seen in a greater way in the next probably 10 to 20 years, because there's just going to be more films about these icons of rock that come out, whether it's the Motley Crue movie came out, but you know, there's so many, the Queen movie, the Elton John movie, they all came out, but there's so many more bands that are going to have these scripted films come out. And those directors are clearly going to be taking cues from Spinal Tap on a lot of them. For a rock fan, I think the next 10, 20 years of entertainment is going to be really fertile ground. And it'll be interesting to see how this is Spinal Tap 2, which is scheduled to be released on the 40th anniversary of the original next year, is going to provide new guidance for how rock movies are being made. Wait, so have I missed that? There is a Spinal Tap 2? Yeah, they announced it last year, yeah. At Con. Really? Yeah. And it's going to drop in March of 2024. No, I must have been sipping too much rosé on the beach to remember that in Con. But, um, <laughs> that's amazing. And I hope it gets a theatrical run because I'll definitely be there. That will be a good one. Who knows? Maybe Cream will do something with them. What should our listeners be looking for in terms of the next things from Cream? How can they engage day-to-day? So go to cream.com, C-R-E-E-M.com. Subscribe to the magazine. We don't put any of the content on the website for free. You have to subscribe to the magazine. If you want free content, 
You should go to Cream Mag on various social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and follow along. You won't get the magazine experience, but you'll at least get a taste. But yeah, you can support us right now by subscribing to the magazine, buying some merchandise, and then coming to events, buy a ticket, go to the events, go to the parties, watch the film, which was released via Coda Collection. You can get it on various streaming services. It was called Cream America's Only Rock and Roll Magazine. So definitely watch that for the history and keep an eye out for what else we're putting out there because you're going to see more shows, you're going to see films, you're going to see more events, more publications. And look, rock and roll is supposed to be fun and that's what we're doing. We're having a good time. Excellent. Well, thanks. This has been fascinating. Really appreciate it, John. Thanks for having me, guys. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Thanks, John. Thank you, John Martin, for joining us and expounding on the myriad ways there are to trod that fine line between stupid and clever. Thanks also to Shannon Cosgrove from Shorefire Media for helping us to arrange this conversation. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Find all our episodes on the CastBox app or wherever you list the podcasts. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TMEP Show, and you can send us comments and suggestions via DM on socials or by email at hello at tmepshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Evergreen Podcast Network.